Welcome to the Judgment Enforcement Hour with Joe Dickerson. In our program, we reveal the unrealistic expectations of many creditors and the schemes of debtors and fraudsters that are nearly as old as man's time on earth. Now, here is your host, Joe Dickerson, with the new processes to outsmart the bad guys. Good evening, Mr. and Ms. America. Welcome to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. This is Joe Dickerson, your host each week, and we are pleased and excited to have with us for a return presentation uh, our dear friend and professional Gene Ferraro. Gene is a certified protection professional, a certified fraud examiner, and also carries the credentials SPHR, which I'll let him explain to you what that significance is. Uh, Gene is the founder and chief executive officer of Forensic Pathways Incorporated, and uh, we are thrilled to have you with us again, Gene. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. Yeah. Give us, a, for the listeners that weren't tuned in week before last when you were here, uh, give us a little of your background and experience, and then we're going to be uh, talking about uh, the fraud processes, uh, researching fraud, and how to recover your money, uh, the various processes that uh, work on that. Uh, Gene? Sure, Joe. Uh, I've been a corporate investigator specializing in employee theft, dishonesty, fraud, white-collar crime, substance abuse, harassment, and discrimination for about 35 years. Um, a good portion of that which I do involves the investigation of fraud and the consulting of the victims of fraud as well as the attorneys that represent them. Okay, Gene, and you uh, also were uh, trained by the Navy and a couple of specialties, including uh, justice. Uh, explain your background in that yeah, area. Yeah, sure, Joe. Uh, that's how I became involved in investigations and first became interested. I'm a graduate of the Naval Justice School, a former military officer. And uh, going to Naval Justice School, I became familiar with the criminal justice system as it applies to the military. And uh, I was responsible for criminal prosecutions up to, but not including, capital crimes. I also dealt with uh, civil litigation. And uh, it was my introduction to what, what we consider today law. And when I completed my obligation, I met an investigator. I never knew private investigators even existed. He indicated that he was one and hired me on the spot. And that sort of started my career in this field. And over a period of time, I've honed my skills um, and developed uh, the abilities to the ability to investigate a variety of different things. Um, about 15 years ago, I realized, though, that many of my customers were HR professionals, and I pursued a designation, designation and certification in human resource management, and that's the SPHR. So I have both skills from the standpoint of an investigator, fact finder, and fraud examiner, but also have the ability to help the client understand, particularly when employees are involved, um, the role of HR and the limitations that might be imposed on an employer once finding a crime. Very good. Well, I know we're going to be uh, talking today about the actual definitions of fraud and what's involved in the normal research process slash investigative process of fraud, and then what kind of evidence has to be obtained to present to a court to win a civil judgment with the objective of recovery. 
and then time permitting, we're going to talk a little bit about in just uh, enforcing the judgment. So why don't you take the definition and uh, let's go. Yeah, I think that's a good place to start, Joe. Um, Many people really don't understand fraud and what fraud actually is. In its most simplest form, although it's defined differently in different statutes, um, both federal and and state, it's simply a crime uh, involving theft by deception, where the fraudster, as we call them, the perpetrator, engages in some some form of deception, stealing from, most often, an unwitting and trusting victim. In order for the fraud to take place, however, several elements have to uh, come together. And uh, as I teach my students, I indicate that there's four essential ingredients. First, we have the perpetrator, of course, and we'll talk more about them and some of their behaviors in just a moment. But we also need a victim. We, we need somebody who has assets, resources, or something of value. The next component, of course, is a scheme. They need some sort of scheme to exploit and take advantage of the victim. And then finally, the tools to execute that scheme. So in the conduct of investigations, um, the first thing we like to do is identify the perpetrator. Once we've identified uh, the perpetrator, we look deeper on how the, f- the, the fraud or crime was perpetrated, the tools that they used, and who did they compromise um, or confidence did they gain in order to gain the access um, and the opportunity to commit the crime intended. Okay, you talk about the tools they used. Could you uh, expound on that a little bit? Sure. Uh, when we talk about occupational fraud, um, we're talking about the tools which are available to them or accessible as a result of their employment. Everybody, I think, uh, listening ha- has heard about or know something about many of the, the fraud schemes which fraudsters use uh, the principal tool, the Internet, telephone, and other technologies. But occupational fraud is a little bit different because there's, a, there's an intimate relationship between the perpetrator and the intended victim. In most cases, these are individuals who are trusted employees who have um, access. And over a period of time, um, they've gained greater access, more trust, and have more abilities, responsibilities, um, tasks, and other things are put upon them that enable them to get a deeper understanding about the operations and uh, finding opportunities to exploit. A good example is um, in in bookkeeping functions, administrative and uh, finance functions, the fraudster or potential fraudster has access to the finances of the organization. They might have the responsibility of cutting payroll checks. So if they if they decide to take advantage of that uh, position, they may decide to um, put ghost employees on the payroll. These are people that actually don't exist. The fraudster identifies an identity or creates an identity and uh, puts them into the system so that they receive a paycheck, just like all of the other real employees. And uh, some cases, uh, we've had cases where there were as many as 200 uh, ghost employees in an organization. Yeah, I remember a few years ago when there was a uh, hurricane that uh, hit the southern part of the United States and was particularly tough on a particular uh, southern city that uh, is uh, 
in a state that has been known for uh, corruption in the government from the governor down over the years. And uh, as a result of uh, some of the outside investigations that were done during that period, uh, the police department learned that they had 15 non-existing employees, but uh, most of those non-existing employees were not even showing up for work. But uh, the money was going somewhere, and they determined what happened to it. And uh, as they say, the rest is history. So that I think that's an ideal example of uh, the people that uh, are supposed to be watching uh the the goal for the boss is uh, really got their hand in his pocket. Well, sure, that's a, it's an example of a, the fox in the hen house, and uh, law enforcement is not immune. Uh, federal government certainly is not immune from uh, uh, such a scheme, um, but uh, many employers. Um, and how do you find them? For example, I mean, if you have a large corporate, imagine um, um, uh, Walmart, for example with over a million employees. How is it that it would know that whether in any one of those one million employees are actually real, reporting to work, doing a job, or are they a ghost? So. Yeah. Fortunately, most of the organizations do have a few honest people working for them. I see a few, the vast majority, and some of those people are actually willing to uh, make it be known that uh, some of the folks are not quite as honest as they are, and oftentimes that's where we get the clues of the places to look. But uh, I've also seen uh, large companies that want to look up to a certain point, and they don't want to look any further. I was <clears throat> retained several years ago by a company that manufactured very expensive oil fill equipment, and they were having inventory shortages and the uh, attorney, uh, in-house attorney for the parent holding company retained me to go to this particular facility and find out what was going on. And to make a long story short, uh, we found that first quality merchandise was being declared as scrap on the midnight shift and was being put into the Dempsey dumpster. And the uh, trash pickup guy would come by and he was uh, such a good guy that instead of charging the company to go by a public scale and getting the uh, terror weight and gross weight of his truck before and after he picked up material, he just used his own scales and didn't charge him a thing. And, uh, of course, they had a, another company set up to take this brand-new stolen first-quality merchandise and sell it at uh, about 110 to 125% of book value because they could do immediate delivery, and the manufacturers were running 12 to 15 months behind on delivery. As a part of my research, uh, I... Uh, was looking at some real estate records and found that the president of that particular division uh, owned a ranch. And I thought that was wonderful. And accidentally, when I pulled some records, the document that I got that was uh, had the survey of his property on it showed a portion of the property right across the fence line from his. And in looking at the margin of the thing, here is the name of the person that owns the trash company and come to find out the trash man was so happy with the his client and appreciated their work so much, he just carved up half of his ranch and deeded it over to the president of the manufacturing company. I reported that back to 
my client, the head of the legal department, and he said, well, very good timing. We're having a meeting tomorrow of all the divisional presidents. I want you to come in my office and wait, and when I call you, I want you to come in and make an oral report to them of your findings. And I'll tell you, the president of that division is going to be there, and it may become a little uncomfortable. I said, fine, let's do it. And I waited, and I waited, and I drank coffee in his office till I couldn't drink any more coffee. And in comes the attorney, and he said, Joe, you did a great job. It is the consensus of all the people on the board that your work was outstanding. We're not going to be needing any more help from you. Thanks so much. Let me know if I can ever recommend you for anybody else. Have a nice day. And the board decided that they did not need to look into that matter. It would be fine. It's not an uncommon experience, Joe. Um, it's not. And uh, depending who's involved and uh, their relationship with the organization, um, sometimes the organization or the victim doesn't want to expose them. Um, and it's it can be very sad. Okay. Um, well, that's great. You want to talk any more about the modus operandi of these bad guys, or shall we move on into the research phase? No, let's talk a little bit more about um, the, the perpetrators. Um, in my work, the culmination of the investigation involves <clears throat> interviewing the individual responsible. And uh, possibly it's because of the nature of the type of work that I perform, but I found some common characteristics among the fraudster. Um, they're either male or female. I don't think there's uh, one gender which dominates the market on fraudsters, but most are over the age of 40. Um, they're intelligent and have very good business skills um, and a good business sense. And that's that's one of the uh, virtues and things that's necessary for them to excel in the organization, gain trust of the potential victim or organization, and uh, gain authority and have access. The next is <clears throat> they often claim or portray themselves as victims themselves or experts that um, no one else in the organization possesses, um, particularly when we, we see uh, frauds perpetrated on the elderly. The perpetrator is an individual who comes to, comes to their victim or finds their victims <clears throat> as individuals who have um, who have or lack the skills that they possess, whether it's real estate, insurance, health care, um, gain trust by teaching them or empowering them with information that allows them to believe that uh, they're better off with that relationship or alliance. Um, the other more common characteristic is we find these individuals often employ their family members. And we see schemes which involve multi-general uh, schemes. Uh, Bernie Madoff is a perfect example. His two sons were involved in his scheme, a $7 billion fraud scheme. Yes. And unfortunately, one of his sons, as a result of it, committed suicide. The other was eventually uh, prosecuted himself, just like Bernie Madoff himself. So <clears throat> those are some of the generalities that I, I, I see. But... <clears throat> I think there's a couple of other things we should talk about. Are we ready for a break? No, we've got a couple of uh, four or five minutes yet. Uh, I also have seen in the uh, cases that we've looked at where uh, 
oftentimes the top echelon just doesn't want to hear about it because they believe in their people. Uh, they have been convinced by the fraudsters that they are the experts, as you alluded to, and uh, go away and don't be telling me that. It's particularly true in your uh, mid-size uh, organizations, either family-owned or closely held organizations. Exactly. Where the, both the perpetrator and the victim have a pre-existing relationship. It might be multi-generational. Multi um, they have investments together. They may share a vacation home and have other interests that bring them together outside the, the business. And it's also the opportunity, those types of relationships, to build trust and confidence, particularly when families are involved. Yeah, I think one of the slickest ones I ever saw was the president of a, a division of this particular manufacturing company uh, had a deal with the chief financial officer, and when they received their money from accounts payable that were coming in from their customers, often the checks were in the uh, hundreds of thousands, if not million to two million dollar check for purchases of uh, expensive equipment, and the check would come in, say, on Thursday – uh, they would deposit that check into an account that was owned by the treasurer and uh, president. And Monday, they would credit it to the company and, uh, you know, show that it came in and everybody got their money. But the interest for uh, 48 to 64 hours uh, on a million or two dollars runs up over the years. You bet. And if everybody gets their money, no harm, no foul. Apparently, that's what they thought. You bet. But uh, that kind of went south on them. Uh, well, that's great. We're going to go ahead and take our first break, and we'll be back in a couple of minutes. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Learn why 80% of civil money judgments are never enforced in the United States. Ensure that you have the best chance to actually recover your judgment and get the money the court awarded to you. Order a copy of Joe Dickerson's new book, Diagnostic and Prescriptive Judgment Enforcement. You can get your copy for just $24.95 with no shipping and handling costs. Call 303-974-5610 or order via email from joe at financialforensicservices.com. That's 303-974-5610 or joe at financialforensicservices.com. Did you know that 80% of civil judgments awarded to creditors are never collected? Be one of the 20% that successfully collects. Joe Dickerson is the nation's leading financial forensic expert. Contact Joe at 303-974-5610 or by email to joe at financialforensicservices.com for a free consultation about your judgment enforcement needs. That's 303-974-5610 or joe at financialforensicservices.com for your free judgment enforcement initial consultation with Joe Dickerson. Contact him today. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
You are tuned in to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. To reach host Joe Dickerson or his guest this week, call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, just keep in mind as we go through these entire uh, processes and talking about the different elements that it's really not what you win in your judgment. It's what you recover that matters. So that's what we're hoping to do is to give you a good idea of not only what does happen, but what you can do about it. Gene, let's go back to where you were. Good. Thank you, Joe. Um, I think it would be interesting for your listeners to learn a little bit about the response. When we uncover a fraud and we ultimately confront the fraudster, how do they respond and what are some of the things that we can expect? And uh, this is very typical, whether it's a multi-million dollar fraud or simple phone scam on a uh, a homeowner. Uh, The first thing that uh, we note that the fraudster usually responds when first caught or confronted. They claim that the um, the crime or the outcome, the result, was all a mistake, that they had made a, 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 uh, an error, they had made a miscalculation, they had deposited money in the wrong account, there was some sort of transfer that where wires were cost, there was some sort of mistake that took place. And as the victim tends to push, the perpetrator then turns around and says, okay, um, although I didn't do it, um, I'll repay the money. Um, and the next response when pushed harder and terms are discussed on how they're going to restore or make whole the victim repay, they claim to be the victim themselves. Sure. And this is generally where the litigation begins, where we, we see the, the fraudster first making a tacit admission by offering to repay, restore, make whole, and then becoming or claiming to be the victim themselves and making charges against that that victim, particularly in businesses, Um, because the victim is usually the owner of the business or the owners of the the business, and the perpetrator would claim that they they were not paid properly, they were not paid fairly, uh, bonuses withheld, taxes taken out that weren't really taxes, and other excuses and uh, sadly resulting in some form of litigation. Not unusual at all. Everybody's got an excuse, and it's always somebody else's problem. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Let's talk about um, something called the fraud triangle. I think you're very familiar with it, Joe. Um, Oh, yeah. As a certified fraud examiner yourself um, and having uh, built your profession and business around fraud, um, the fraud triangle was – is is a method of understanding fraud and how it actually uh, occurs. In the 1960s, a fellow by the name of Don Kresge um, was a sociologist at University of California in Santa Barbara, and he had uh, obtained an interest in um, crime. And he uh, obtained the opportunity to interview those in prison and he gained interest not only in street criminals and, and crimes, but became focused in frauds. Because most of these were white-collar individuals, um, people of some renown, had responsibilities. Sometimes they were business owners themselves or claimed they had a business. Sure. And uh, largely white-collar. 
And he made an interesting discovery and observation in interviewing them. And he determined what we now call as the fraud triangle. And it's three, three components. The first component <clears throat> is <clears throat> opportunity. That is, for, in order for the fraud to occur, there has to be an opportunity. At the same time, the perpetrator has to be able to rationalize their intent and crime. And last but not least is a need. And most often it's a perceived need. So as we look at the fraud triangle of the three, opportunity, rationalization, and need, the victim can only control one component. And that is the opportunity. How how is it that they can protect their assets and uh, prevent themselves from becoming a victim? When we conduct our frauds, that's where we are fraud investigations. That's where we begin to look. Where are the opportunities in the system, the system opportunities? And very often we find opportunities that haven't yet been exploited. These, these are opportunities where the crime, ha- uh, the crime hasn't occurred yet. Um, it's just waiting to be found. Yep. It's the, the bad guys haven't got there yet. Yeah, they just haven't figured it out. Yeah. And, you know, I have found, Gene, and a lot of times these companies will have excellent, excellent uh, processes and policies that uh, cover plugging all these holes, but there is a breakdown at several levels from the executive committee that has established these policies and procedures and HR and them working together. Middle management often doesn't get this, that they can communicate it to their uh, blue-collar level employees or their clerical employees uh, what the actual policies are therefore they are not enforced and when they're not enforced they might as well not exist because the opportunities are there uh, as if uh, they had never been perceived and uh, adopted by management because the employees at the various levels don't know them don't know all of them don't know enough of it and Having them is of absolutely no value if it's not communicated and enforced. I think that's a very good observation. Um, And and policies are important. Policies, practices, um, and some form of audit, ensuring that the policies and procedures are followed and expectations are met. I tell my clients that in designing a, a fraud prevention scheme, the first place they should start and examine is their mission, vision, and values. Um, we've, we as business people have made a lot of fun about businesses creating these magnificent, flowery, overwrought mission statements. And uh, they're gonna conquer the world. They're gonna, they're gonna solve cancer. They're gonna do all sorts of crazy things. I think this, the most simplest of mission statements are the best. We're gonna provide our customers the best and most valuable service possible at the most competitive price. That's a perfect, hypothetical mission statement. The vision is where does the company want to go or the organization in the case of a nonprofit. Where does it want want to be uh, six months from now, one year, five years, ten years, or how far out they they look. And then values. And values are important because um, we know that setting the tone at the top, that is when – the leaders of the organization, whether it's the board of directors, the president, the CEO, those that we call the uh, uh, living or working in the C-suite, Mahogany right. Row, um, employees at law levels look up to them and see how they behave. I had a case once many years ago for a very well-known 
jean manufacturer, mm-hmm. and that uh, was a very popular uh, uh, commodity at the time. And uh, they had identified by way of a tip that the employees had a substance abuse problem, and the substance abuse problem eventually became a theft problem. Because in the case of substance abuse in the workplace, generally speaking, the perpetrator has only two means to pay for their drugs. They either steal or deal. And if they decide to deal, the most likely customers are going to be their co-workers. In the case they're going to steal, the first victim is going to be their employer. Employer. Um, Upon meeting this uh, client uh, in a very large, well-appointed office, there was a silver tray on a coffee table, and it was heaped with a white powder. Now, you can imagine what that white powder was. It was cocaine. Was it creamer? No, it wasn't creamer. Nope. Gone. And uh, they offered it to me. Of course, I, I declined. Uh, but here, here I was as a corporate investigator uh, called to assist them solving a very serious problem of which substance abuse was a component. And the uh, owners were themselves using cocaine. As I pointed out to them later, uh, there were probably wasn't a single employee that didn't know that they had cocaine in their office or used cocaine. So they had failed to set that that value and that expectation. Well, the tone was set at the top. Yeah, it, it just wasn't the right tone. It just wasn't the right tone, pre- precisely. But <clears throat> behind that, that mission, vision, values have to be policies. And policies are fine. Um, and every organization should have policies that control and um, manage the activities of the business, whether it's human resource policies, uh, money handling policies, manufacturing policies, customer policies. But there has to be protocols. How do we enforce those policies? How do they really work? It's wonderful to have these large three-ring binders filled with elaborate plans and details about what's expected, but how do you really go about that? And then finally, what are the practices? So when we audit an organization, we look at all of those components. The mission, the vision, the values, the policies, the procedures, and then finally, what are the practices? Because we can have all of these activities perfectly aligned, perfectly documented. But no implementation. But no implementation, and the practices are completely different. And very often, the victims say, we never knew. How is it possible? And that's probably true. They didn't because they didn't look. They They didn't didn't do their job. That's correct. So they got what they had coming. Well, <laughs> maybe <laughs> the, maybe. Stock, the <laughs> stockholders and the investors certainly didn't get what Some they had suffered, covered. Right? Some Ab- suffered. Absolutely. And that's, that's often the case. Yeah. It certainly is. All right. Well, I think that uh, certainly covers that part. Now, let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, how we find this, what we're looking for in a fraud investigation, and then how are we going to use those findings so that they're admissible in court and actually lead us to where we need to get as the next step, which is getting a civil judgment. And I do want to point out uh, before we get into that, Gene, that when people hear fraud, they are typically thinking of the criminal fraud that we're talking about, whether it's handled uh, as a criminal matter to have somebody prosecuted and incarcerated with a restitution order, or whether or not it is a civil fraud, and a civil fraud uh, typically has different elements in it, 
and it may not be a criminal act at all. It can be where uh, something was done uh, by the person that the judgment was against to hide their assets and put them offshore or in the name of an entity that uh, the creditor doesn't know about. And those are, are what we call badges of fraud that indicate that the act itself was done to hinder, delay, and defraud the creditor from making their recovery. And I wanted to make the distinction on these two before we get into more elements of the criminal fraud, because all fraud is not criminal. But the type we're talking about here certainly is, and we need to know how to recognize it and what to do about it. Um, You raise a very good point, uh, Joe, regarding the criminality a fraud, and you're quite right. Uh, most of us, even in our profession, when they hear the word fraud, they're asked to investigate fraud, or in the in, in the case such as yours, where you're going after the assets or making a recovery post fraud discovery. Um, many people, including um, very experienced business people, believe that these types of activities are always a crime. And one of the first instinctual responses in uncovering um, a fraud is calling law enforcement. And I can't tell you how uh, bad that idea is. Unless there's a, there's a, there's a risk of human life or danger, um, very often law enforcement is probably the last people you should call. Yeah, they're looking at murders and robberies and things involving safety of the public and uh, violent crime as opposed to uh, some of the white collar stuff. Yes, there's some law enforcement agencies that will work that stuff, uh, but a lot of them don't have the expertise nor the manpower, and they're certainly looking for more cases to investigate, where those of us like uh, your firm and mine are certainly available from a uh, employee-employer relationship where we can be engaged as an agent of the owners or the principals of the company to come in and do the work. And if we find that there's a crime involved, we then can take that uh, investigation or the work that we've done, put a bow around it, put a ribbon on the top of it, take it to the district attorney's white collar division and say, we have done this work. Uh, We believe this is a criminal matter rather than a civil, and we would like to give our finished work product to you and ask that you prosecute it. And I always ask them, and please ask the judge to order restitution uh, for this heinous criminal act that was done. They take that. They're proud to get it. They get the credit for catching the bad guys. They make the case. The judge makes his ruling. Everybody's happy, and it's done. Then we can take that restitution order, which, by the way, less than 3% of those are ever paid. For less than $1,000, we can convert the criminal restitution order to a civil judgment, go find the bad guys, where they're hiding the money, what entities they put it into, and use the civil process to make the recovery so the client is much better off uh, and gets their money back the law enforcement and the criminal justice system gets their stats and um, we have a happy client. Yeah. And and Joe, you might recall a case that we worked together. I do. About three years ago. And uh, the client in this particular case was the victim of about uh, 1.2 million, as I think your team calculated. Yes. A loss. 
Yeah, we used documents from the company once the the fraud came out. Uh, there were certain tickets and so forth that had to be analyzed. A few of which had been lost in a, in a flood, but I ended up having to hire eighteen temporary employees in my firm and we set up computers in our war room for these 18 clerical people to go in and enter all of these tickets, the date, the time, the amount, and so forth. And as a result of those findings, we were able to document the fraud and turn it over to you and you carried the ball from there. Go ahead. It, it causes me to chuckle a little bit, Joe, because I remember the day you called me over and uh, your uh, team was working in the war room. And inside that room, among all the paper, were 18 banker boxes yes. with the lids off. They were surround, They were against the wall around the room. And you said to me, OK, Gene, there's the result and in information. You take it from here. And Have a good day, my friend. <laughs> And uh, together we worked, actually, yeah. and we teamed, and we did exactly what you said. We packaged the, the uh, uh, case so that we could present it to law enforcement, and that's exactly what we did. Together, we uh, verified the data. We packaged it in a way that law enforcement and the criminal justice system could use, knowing prosecutors and their temptation to take the easiest path, reduce charges. Uh, we packaged it, put a bow on it, made a major presentation. They took it. And we won a very successful uh, criminal prosecution in that case. And some restitution order. We we did. In fact, we got both a criminal restitution and a civil restitution on it. Double pleasure. Double your fun. There you go. It's time for a break. We're going to uh, go to a commercial, and then we're going to come back, talk a little bit more about that, and what you can do to get your money back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Did you know that 80% of civil judgments awarded to creditors are never collected? Be one of the 20% that successfully collects. Joe Dickerson is the nation's leading financial forensic expert. Contact Joe at 303-974-5610 or by email to joe at financialforensicservices.com for a free consultation about your judgment enforcement needs. That's 303-974-5610 or joe at financialforensicservices.com for your free judgment enforcement initial consultation with Joe Dickerson. Contact him today. Learn why 80% of civil money judgments are never enforced in the United States. Ensure that you have the best chance to actually recover your judgment and get the money the court awarded to you. Order a copy of Joe Dickerson's new book, Diagnostic and Prescriptive Judgment Enforcement. You can get your copy for just $24.95 with no shipping and handling costs. Call 303-974-5610 or order via email from joe at financialforensicservices.com. That's 303-974-5610 or joe at financialforensicservices.com. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Thank you. 
You are tuned in to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. To reach host Joe Dickerson or his guest this week, call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, Mr. and Miss America. We're going to now talk just a little bit about before we get into remedies and recovery. I want Gene to share with us some of his experience and expertise in what can go wrong with these and talk about the mind of the perpetrator and the various tangents that they get off in and what some of the very negative repercussions can be. Not that we're not going to address the problem and face it face to face, but there are things you need to be aware of, you need to watch for, uh, so that it doesn't become even more of a problem. Gene. Thank you, Joe. Uh, yeah, we talked a little bit about the rationalization and the justification as a component of the fraud triangle. Um, something I, I think would be valuable to understand, and certainly our listeners uh, might appreciate, is the psychopathy is associated with the criminal mind. Um, not all of the criminals that we investigate are nonviolent. Um, they're not always people that will play by the rules once caught, um, face the drummer, take the punishment, and pay the restitution. In some cases, although it's uh, rare, they are, in fact, have violent propensities. Um, in some cases, they're psychopaths. A psychopath is an individual who hasn't uh, a, a conscience. They have many uh, other characteristics. They're narcissistic. Um, they, they believe that this world, um, this place, this job, this company, all the things around them, including even their family members, are put on this earth to serve their purposes. And without a conscience, they're capable of doing many things. And once caught, identified, and cornered, they can be very dangerous. And as we tell our clients, both you and I, um, that simply because they uncover the fraud, um, they may not want to confront the fraudster themselves. They may get the resources they need in order to do it properly and avoid a possible uh, dangerous circumstance. Yeah, I know that they oftentimes want that termination done by human resources, and uh, that certainly has its its value from a uh, procedural standpoint, but uh, I don't think someone from human resources should be uh, doing that alone, uh, because you never know what it's going to turn into, and give us some examples, Gene. Sure. Um, we've established over the years um, protocols for difficult and challenging um, uh, terminations. We do complete backgrounds on the individuals, uh, just as you do. We know what their criminal record is, records, uh, what their criminal record is or may have been in the past, and we do a full assessment. If we think that we may have an individual who is dangerous, we'll take the necessary. Uh, execute the necessary protocols to provide uh, security not only for our client, the organization, but those who are going to handle the termination. Um, and very often, we sit in with the communicator, often, as you said, human resources. Um, but we may have more than one person in the uh, uh, room. And I learned this uh, 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 
the, uh, very much the hard way myself, confronting an individual who was involved in a very significant fraud. In fact, uh, he uh, was a NASA contractor, and he had a nice going fraud of about $25,000 a year. He was a psychopath. $25,000 a month, excuse me. Okay. Yeah, 25000 a month. Um, he was intergalactic director of human resources for this organization. And um, we learned through our investigation leading up to the confrontation, ultimate decision to terminate him, uh, they had violent tendencies. In fact, by all uh, 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 indications, he was more than likely a psychopath. Now, we couldn't make that determination, and I'm not qualified to make that determination myself, but he had the behaviors and he had the background to demonstrate that he was certainly capable of danger. And uh, I didn't take the necessary precautions. Um, I was too young and inexperienced at the time, and I confronted him, and in he walked with a aluminum briefcase, a Halliburton briefcase. Another one. Right? A very pretty thing. And he sat across the table from me and the human resource manager with the hinges towards us. And he clicked it open and slowly raised it so that we could not see what was in it. And it was at that moment, Joe, I decided that if I was able to survive this termination, that I would never do it with ar- without armed security in the room and those types of circumstances. Um, he didn't have a weapon. And uh, it ter- it, 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 the, the outcome was without violence or uh, any harm or even a threat. But it points out that even the most experienced individuals, seasoned individuals like us, it's possible that we can make mistakes and missteps. That's right. So we need to team up and give it the best possible treatment we can from the collective wisdom that comes from the experience and knowing when to call in the right backup. That's right. And that's why we like working in teams and uh, your organization, all your projects, um, in my experience working with them, it's a team effort so that uh, we look for those types of things. We and, and better understand the crime, the, the tools used for that crime, and ultimately uh, making recovery and resolving the problem. So teams work. They do. They do. Uh, well, any other examples of... Uh, that type of behavior you want to share before we move along? I'll simply, uh, yeah, I have, I have many I- I- examples, uh, Joe. Um, one of the uh, curiosities, though, um, that we typically uh, deal with in these type of circumstances um, is w- what became of the money? Where did it go? How did they spend it? And often in uh, the process of trying to figure that out, we learn about their habits, we learn about their personal life, and many of their interests. And we had one particular case where the uh, individual was investing the money that they were stealing in automatic weapons. Now, many people uh, outside the United States might not know that um, automatic weapons, machine guns, as they're often called, Um, are lawful to own in the United States under very special circumstances. One needs a special firearms license to own them. And they're very expensive. Um, It's difficult to purchase one even um, when when possible, given the background and having the economic resources, passing the FBI background and so on. Um, They they start around $15,000 to $30,000 just to buy such a gun. Um, And this fellow had a very large collection of automatic weapons. 
whether he used them or intended to use them, we really didn't know. But consider that for a moment. So the person that we've uncovered and identified at the, the center of this scheme, a scheme which had lasted over a number of years, had the ability and the firepower of, of a small army. How do we now then confront him? And what what type of warnings and information did we need to pass on to law enforcement, others, his employer, and those who possibly could have an opportunity to come into contact with this individual? And finally, how do we know we got all the weapons back uh, or, or they were effectively um, secured after our investigation and recovery was made? How do, we, how do we do that and know that they still don't have the ability to harm somebody? That's right, because just because you uh, are successful in terminating the person and you were able to uh, do this without having violence or the violence was minimized and there was no physical harm done, that doesn't mean with these people that we don't perhaps need to worry about a repercussion hours later, days later, or sometimes weeks later. So uh, there's a lot more thought has to go into this when you have done the background and you know the propensity of these people for violence. And we have to make certain assumptions. And, of course, that's the reason that more corporate offices now are having security card access and panic buttons and so forth that uh, are good, but a lot of them still don't have them. Yeah. Um, We sometimes negotiate with the perpetrator. Um, and let's say it's an example of a workplace uh, fraud in a trusted capacity, maybe the controller, the CFO or something like that, uh, in a fairly high position. We'll negotiate their separation. And I don't mean uh, the economic terms of it, um, but we'll negotiate a separation and sort of the rules of the game going forward. And here's an example that we have the opportunity and we insist that we can contact the individual at any time for a period of, uh, let's just hypothetically say, over the course of the next three years, that we will periodically check in with this individual. And he or she will tell us wherever they go for employment. We agree that we will not communicate to that employer their past and compromise their opportunity to become productive citizens and change their life. We're not going to interrupt them, but we're going to check in with them and make sure they're doing okay, reminding them that we're still there, we're still watching, but we're also concerned about their mental health and success, turning themselves around. And uh, if recovery is made and been affected, and they fulfilled their obligations in, in returning the money and interest and all the totality of the loss, they deserve a second chance. I believe that. Um, but we may very often want to monitor them and follow them. Yes, and uh, that brings up a, a, another consideration, and that is uh, when you're hiring somebody, uh, you want to do a pretty good background and see where they have been before and see what you can learn about the circumstances surrounding uh, termination and negotiated settlements. You may not learn anything, but you may, if uh, you don't get enough information and enough cooperation, there may well be a reason for it. So you should be a little more cautious than normal with those people. All right, let's talk just briefly about recovery. And once you have that civil judgment in place, there is one key to the entire recovery, and 
this is what our company does is find the money to get it back and the processes and get the proper legal team on board. And the first thing that we're looking for are where are their current bank accounts? And once we can get into those, because we probably have a civil judgment at this point, we can issue a subpoena to the bank. I always ask for at least the last 24 months, unless there's a reason to go further, maybe 36 months of all credits and debits from the company or from that checking account to see where the guy's money's coming from and where it's going. Uh, Are they investing uh, in uh, rental properties? fine, good for them, but that may be rental properties that we can take that were bought with the stolen money or the money that was uh, civilly obtained uh, illicitly. Or paying insurance on a yacht. Or paying insurance on a yacht. And uh, the yacht's going to be in the name of some shell entity that they have no visible consideration uh, and ownership in, but there is always a way around that. Speaking of the yachts, one way we were able to tie a guy back one time, we couldn't tie him back to uh, the direct ownership of the yacht until we checked with the Federal Communications Commission and found that he uh, had to have a license for the radio on the yacht. Uh, and that radio uh, license came back to his home address and uh, showed that he was the operator of the radio that was installed on the yacht that he did not own. So we had some good uh, conversations and ultimately got a recovery without having to escalate it into a greater civil investigation because uh, he was happy to pay us and make us go away. Uh, so the the information is there. It's usually in the money that is either being deposited or the money that's going out. And you can get that by civil subpoena, uh, do a forensic analysis of where that money's going, what it's uh, doing. And it oftentimes goes into additional accounts or additional business entities that have been set up. And this is where we use the civil process that we're talking about by moving the money from the account that it was in that is in the name of the judgment debtor to other accounts. That is what I referred to a few minutes ago as uh, civil fraud done to, quote, hinder, delay and defraud the creditor. So if it's put into another company, we find it there. We can follow that money into that company and literally extract it from that company. And if that company has bought assets, forklifts, uh, uh, trucks, whatever, with that money, we can take those assets too and liquidate them and um, recover the money for our client that they've lost by this. Gene, thank you so much for being with us. It's always a pleasure to have you here. Uh, We continue to get good reports and good comments from the last time you were with us, so I'm sure that will happen again. Thank you so much. We appreciate your professionalism. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, uh, Mr. and Ms. America, thank you for being with us again. Uh, We'll see you next Wednesday at 5 o'clock Mountain Time. In the meantime, Remember, it's not what you win, it's what you recover that matters. Thank you and good evening.
Thank you for tuning in to the Judgment Enforcement Hour. Be sure to join Joe Dickerson and another guest next Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time and 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We'll bring you more case studies and advice next week.